Blade Runner is the greatest cult film of all time. I would make a phone call and say, how can I hang a girl on a meat hook and get a PG rating? And they said, well, you can't. Low budget movie man. Hey, you got a chainsaw? Harvey Orange is one of the greatest films of all time. A very edgy drama. Malcolm McDowell really grounds that film. I was thrilled with it. You can't try to do it, it just happens by accident. Today's filmmakers all owe George Romero, especially if Night of the Living Dead, so much cred. Everybody copies him. He's the originator, he's the master. I think it's just a cult of one. I don't have to check with anybody else. Nobody else needs to like it. Hello and welcome back to the B-Movie Podcast. I'm your host, I'm one of your hosts actually, Adam Kautzer, and with me today as always is your other co-host, Scott Phillips. And today we are actually wrapping up um, a, a sort of mini ongoing series, um, Time Warp, uh, the uh, the documentary series of about the greatest cult films of all time. It's a three part documentary series that um, is on iTunes, Amazon, wherever you get your Google Play, wherever you get your uh, your paid VOD content. And uh, it today is the third part where we're looking at the comedies, uh, which is something that uh, I'm going to let Scott talk a little bit about this is that, but that we don't actually talk about comedy. We haven't talked about comedies um, on the B movie podcast all that much um, though. We both, I think can agree that we, we, we love comedies. It's just not something that we talk about. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It, uh, it seems like, uh, especially uh, when you're genre fans that, you know, it seems to always be like horror action, crime, sci-fi, uh, things like that. But, you know, I love a good comedy. Matter of fact, I was having a discussion with a buddy of mine the other day, not somebody who's a, a, a film critic, but just a film fan. And we were discussing, you know, how few lately really good comedies there have been. Uh, I think my, my shining example of a truly hilarious film over the last few years is Game Night. Yeah. And, and that might be one of the only ones that I just kind of laughed the whole way through. Uh, but it was interesting to to take this kind of survey uh, of uh, comedies of the past uh, and remember how many of these uh, films I had seen over the years. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, like uh, I was I was actually thinking about that, like what what has been one of the funnier movies that I saw in the last couple of years, um, like or even like last year, um, I would say Game Night was one of those movies. Um, I also think that like I know this is a weird thing for uh, to say, but um, I hate the way that most comedies are shot. Like because of the way that they're shot really fucking flat and just like they're shot for the joke. But they don't do it with any kind of style. Like, like I love yeah. the fact. I love, love, loved the fact that um, that Game Night had a very, like, a very specific, like, stylish way of of uh, of shooting uh, a comedy. Um, a one that I uh, that I really loved uh, last year that I don't think a lot of people had seen or even like 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 uh or when they did they didn't like it was stuber i really liked stuber like it was right it was kind of like in my wheelhouse of like action comedies and stuff so sure. but but yeah like um we actually don't talk about it because like you said it's it's just more of a genre like we're more genre like you know we're, we're kind of more genre based or like 
I guess it's just like in anything comedy, just like, like Dangerfield said, uh, comedy just does gets no respect, no respect whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, sometimes you'll find films, you know, at, at the festivals that we go to and stuff like that, that may have kind of like a deadpan streak of humor running through it. That's true. Uh, or, or the occasional kind of horror comedy or something like that. Uh, but it is interesting to, to think that, you know, at a lot of these festivals, just out and out comedies uh, are not usually part of the programming. No. And uh, I don't know if they're considered uh, lowbrow or, uh, you know, not not up to festival standards, uh, which honestly a lot of them aren't. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, but it's it's interesting. And so to, to take this kind of little walk down memory lane, I mean, I kept uh, throughout this film when they would go over, you know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High or Valley Girl or things like that. Uh, I would be sitting there thinking HBO. HBO and my parents didn't know HBO, you know, <laughs> no, absolutely. I was, you know, I was a, a kid with a television in his bedroom, uh, who had HBO. And so I can remember some of these R rated films from, uh, being, you know, 12, 13, 14, uh, when they came out and, uh, catching them on, uh, on, uh, HBO. Uh, the funny thing was I, I was like a big kid. I mean, like I got a lot of my growth early. Mm-hmm. And so like in the eighth grade, I kind of look like a grown man. I mean, <laughs> I had like baby face, but I was about six feet tall in eighth grade. Oh, wow. And so the funny thing was I could have gotten in any R rated movie that I wanted to go see. Nobody ever would have asked any questions, but I couldn't drive. <laughs> so, you know, it's the one thing you can't fake. Uh, is, <laughs> is having a driver's license when you're, you know, 12, 13, something like that. Uh, so I still wound up seeing most of these, uh, you know, kind of R-rated comedies and everything, uh, uh, second run on HBO when I was a kid. Uh, no, absolutely. Um, a lot of these were uh, were things that I definitely saw. Um, like, it's weird because, like, there's this, there's this moment. There's a very, like, distinct moment. Um, like if you go chronologically, there's this very distinct moment where it went from seeing things on VHS and on cable to actually seeing these things in the theater. Um, like, I know we're taught, like, um, like, you know, we're, we're recording this in the middle of COVID, uh, COVID, like, you know, crisis time. And like, you know, one of the things that this, like this, this, this particular documentary brought up was for me, at least was um, the theater experience, because it's one thing to see a comedy in, in, in your own home, even with a group of like, say five or six people, it's completely different when you see it in a packed house opening night, nobody has seen the jokes and to be in a crowd, to see a comedy and the infectiousness of, of the comedy itself. And it's really interesting to want, like, to, to like comedies are dead. Like, I know that people think of like big budget movies, like big, like we're, 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 we're just, I mean, I guess we can just say it. We're, we're recording this June 28th, 2019. Right. And so Tenet has just been delayed again. It's, you mean 2020? Oh, 2020. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but t- Adam's, Adam's time traveling from a year ago to record this podcast seriously <laughs> he, he would not fucking believe he would not believe yeah. this shit um this is, 
This is in the morning. We're not even drunk. I know. Seriously. <laughs> um, I haven't had my coffee yet, or at least I'm working on it. Um, but Tenet has just been delayed, and it's now officially been delayed about two months. Uh, or no, a month. Like, officially more than a month. But the thing is, is that they're talking about, like, you know, Nolan talking about the theatrical experience. Like, y- y- seeing it on a big screen is great and all, but, I mean, you and I both know, like, you know, short throw projector puts you up into a 100 inch screen, 120 inch screen with the distance that you're looking at it. It's no it's really no difference than an average size theater. Right. Um, but the thing is, is that comedies, comedies are like that. That weird chemical thing where it gets infectious. Yeah. And oh, yeah, I just kept on thinking about like the ones that I saw in the theaters are like the ones that are the funniest to me. Like the the one that I zeroed in on was Kingpin. Like I I had forgotten, completely forgotten about my experience, my theatrical experience with Kingpin and how funny of a movie it was because I saw it opening night in Hollywood um, in a packed house. And I literally got out of that movie and thought that it was going to be bigger than like like bigger than Dumb and Dumber. Like, like I thought the Farley brothers hit a home run because of just yep. how funny it was. Yep. And, and I'd if, totally forgotten that it died at the box office. Yeah. Because when they started to talk about it as a cult hit, I was like, cult hit? You guys are kind of stretching that definition. And then they reminded me that despite the fact that I thought it was an all-star comedy, that it just bombed. Yeah. And so I had totally forgotten that it had done no box office. No. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Or, or like, like, so like the, ch- like the big, like the big one, the one that they first start off with, the one that you just mentioned fast times. Like, I forgot that, like I'd seen the documentary when that first DVD came out, like that really nice DVD, like at that time the early two thousands, when DVDs started to like, when people started to realize that you could do content and people wanted to see it. I had no, like all I knew was, was that fast times was something that I saw on cable that my parent, like, like you very similar to you that my parents didn't want me to see. Um, I was probably way too young to see it because I really didn't understand some of the stuff that they were trying to talk about, but, but still seeing it that early, I thought that this movie was like the biggest thing in the world because all of my friends had seen it. Like we all talked about it. Like we all, we all acted like it was like this monster hit, but then to find out like through that documentary and then being reminded of it in this documentary about how they like Universal had no trust in it, so they didn't release it into like a like they did a very limited release, and then it just died, and it found its life on VHS. Was just I was like, wow, like it's really interesting to watch this, like, and remember that a lot of these are truly cult hits. Yeah, because I mean, some of these films are films that we would think of as like classics. Yeah, you know, like uh, like you know, beyond uh, a, a cult hit. Uh, but the the definition of of cult is kind of you know, you know the the kind of backdoor popularity. You know this this didn't make it uh, originally, uh, but grew over time and kind of snuck into uh, the nat- the national you know consciousness or what have you. And so uh, it's funny because uh, several of these movies I just think of as you know must sees. And uh, and yet they have, you know, a, a cult background. No, absolutely. Um, like so like I f- like I don't know if you agree with me, but I feel like it, it was interesting how they they peaked it 
like they kind of like built this thing where they they built this kind of almost like this ladder towards like what I think is like the ultimate cult comedy, which is uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Right. Like, uh, what was your experience? Like, I know I remember how I experienced it. I want to know how like how you came about with because I can only imagine like the first question I guess should be um, like, were you a big Python fan when you were a kid? You know, n- not when I was was a kid kid. Uh, matter of fact, I could remember flipping through, you know, back in the days of, of you know, cable mm-hmm. and, and flipping through and, and finding a little snippet of one of their movies and not even really knowing what it was. And, and if you're just watching some little piece completely out of context, uh, it's not going to be that effective. And I could remember thinking, God, what is this? This is so stupid. And so I just, you know, flip on. And, uh, and what happened was, uh, of all strange things, I got into faulty towers. Ah, okay. And, and so the, you know, the, the British, you know, sitcom mm-hmm. where John Cleese is the, uh, uh, the guy who owns kind of like a bed and breakfast kind of place. And it's yeah. just all the stuff that goes wrong, uh, while he's trying to run this place with his wife who gives him endless grief over, you know, his ineptitude. And, uh, and so I just, uh, found, uh, faulty towers and just, you know, I guess the, the 1980s version of binge them <laughs> and, uh, you know, just watched, uh, all of them when I could find them. And so that made me turn to John Cleese movies, you know, and then of yeah. course, fish called Wanda came out and everything like that. And so honestly, I didn't come into to Monty Python until probably like my high school days. Uh, after I'd been introduced to some of the the central players through other films, and uh, and maybe it was just by then I was of an age that I could appreciate it or whatever, because you know then I thought the Monty Python films were hilarious. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad that you said that because I didn't get like luckily I didn't get to see them until I was in college. Um, I'd remember I'd seen like. I'd see like because of the fact that they were so omnipresent for me, at least on Comedy Central, like all right. of this stuff, like I had kind of seen on the periphery, but it wasn't until I got in like I was like in college, 18, 19, that a friend was like, no, no, no. OK, so I'm going to give you my VHS of the Monty Python stuff. And the thing with the Monty Python, like the thing about the series was, was that. You couldn't watch them out of order because they built upon things. So you had to watch that like they were like this like oh, almost serialized com- comedy that kind of spoke onto something that happened. Like they were kind of geniuses in that regard, like where they kind of spoke about something that happened for like, you know, four episodes beforehand. And if you didn't see them in a row or you didn't see them consistently it was funny, but it wasn't, it was a lot of non sequiturs, it felt like. Um, right. But yeah, like when I officially finally saw Python and the Holy Grail, um, the first experience, I kind of didn't get it. But the second experience, again, going to theatrical experiences, I went to a midnight screening of that movie the second time. I was forced by um, a a girlfriend at the time who was a like a really huge like um what do they call those anglophiles uh she was mm-hmm. a huge she like she was huge into anything english and so oh god i like don't even remind me how many fucking times i've seen fucking pride and prejudice the colin firth one fuck <laughs> i hate like i'm just gonna say this we are never fucking covering that that fucking miniseries 
forever. That's how much I hate that series. But um, we we went to go see a, a midnight a midnight screening of uh, Python and the Holy Grail, and then I got it. Like it just like I understood, I understood it better than I ever had up until that point. And it just like you know that theatrical experience helped me um, with that film a lot. Um, uh, it's interesting how that kind of works with comedies about how sometimes uh, they work. And then sometimes it doesn't like, sometimes it's just something that like, like for me, like best in show didn't like the first couple of times I saw it, it wasn't something that I really like I, I loved, but mm-hmm. it was over repeated viewings that that movie became one of those things where I was like, it's not comfort food, but it, it builds upon itself and you start to notice things in it. That you don't yeah, normally the, notice. Well, you know, and the thing about that style of of comedy is it is played so straight. So yeah. it's kind of so flat, so to speak, in delivery that you really have to kind of be familiar with the subject, uh, the the milieu that they're trying to portray, something like that, because that's where the humor lies. It's not like, you know, set up punchline, set up punchline. And so especially that kind of humor can be hard to, to get, uh, if you, uh, you know, if, if you're not into whatever the subject matter is. And, uh, and so any of those kind of mockumentaries to me, it's, it's that way it's based so heavily on making fun of the subject matter itself, that if you're not familiar with like dog shows or the folk music scene, or with like this is Spinal Tap, you know the the rock documentary exactly. stuff like that. Then then you're not going to find it to be as as funny because you don't know what they're kind of riffing on when they're making their jokes. And uh, though I did think that it was uh, really interesting that like none of Fred Willard's stuff was written. Yeah, no. In Best in Show, that it was just like you know. Just just go for it and make up, you know, whatever you want to make up. Well, my favorite part about it was is that they he took inspiration from um, Joe Graziola, like which is something yeah. that you totally yeah. probably appreciated. Like, yes. I mean, even I appreciated because, I mean, I was a, I, I mean, I I kind of grew up with him and Vince Scully as like as color commentary guys for baseball right. when I was sure. a kid watching baseball. And so, like, to add that in, because like. Like what what this this documentary made me do was in some cases made me go back and really and rewatch them. Like I just bought the the three Christopher Guest um um uh, do, uh mockumentaries on Blu-ray because they were on mm-hmm. sale. Uh, Warner Archive owns them all, and so what I instantly did was rewent rewatched it, Best in Show and. The thing that was the funniest to me was the fact that knowing the knowledge that he was basically impersonating Graziola, it made it even funnier, um, which right. is which is something like like what I loved. Like, that's my favorite kind of comedy is the is the one that may not necessarily be funny at the first the first moment, but it builds on it because of like it, it's so layered and so deep, um, like which is something like um it's interesting because it's like uh there's some things that I f- like like office space. Office space is another one of those ones that like is so deadpan at the beginning but then the more yeah. you watch it the more you find the humor in it. Um you know yeah. which that one is like 
That one is like the king of like like discoveries because no one watched that movie in the in the theater. No yeah, one. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Yeah, no, exactly. It's always been something that like you introduce to a friend who's never heard of it kind of a thing. Exactly. No, 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 absolutely. That one has definitely been one of those ones. Um so You know, and it is it is interesting though that with like cult films like that mm-hmm. that that it is you know, there's almost like a form of like evangelism to them. Yeah. You know, you've, you've got like the true believers who think that this is either a hilarious movie or a scary movie or an awesome sci-fi movie or whatever the genre that we have seen over these three documentaries that they're like true believers in it. They think that this is, is awesome. Even if it didn't have the commercial performance behind it to kind of validate their opinion. And so then they're kind of, you know, creating their own little disciples of you've got to come look at this and uh, and see this. And then that person becomes a freak for the film and starts sharing it with other people. And it really is kind of like, you know, the the ultimate, you know, word of mouth uh, growth in in reputation of of certain films. And some films achieve that status and some films don't. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um like so what was interesting to me was like some of the films that they covered that just didn't work for me um and one of the big ones was like i'm probably getting a lot of shit for this two of the big ones for me and i don't know if they like i don't know how you feel about them were napoleon dynamite and clerks like they've really kind of never those are both films that like i appreciated them at the time like clerks i appreciated at the time but it was like 15 year old me seeing it for the first time like watching it now i'm just like okay i mean it's it's okay and natolian dynamite i just never got (laughs) yeah Uh, napoleon dynamite was was one of those movies that was just for me personally just kind of so out there you Mm -hmm. know uh, that it didn't resonate with me like some of these other ones do yeah and uh, and because i think that there's some element of identifying with, you know, that, that makes a film connect with you like that. You can see yourself in a character, uh, you can see yourself in, you know, a certain set of circumstances or what have you. And so with Napoleon, it it was just kind of like everybody in that movie was so just outlandishly eccentric Yes, that I didn't really have an in. If you know what I mean, no, absolutely. I didn't have, I didn't have a way that I identified with it. So I kind of watched it like almost like a piece of performance art or something, uh, as opposed to a movie that I really identified with. And so there were a lot of moments that I thought were, were funny, uh, and, and listening to them recount the throwing the steak yeah. uh, scene was hilarious uh, on, uh, on this documentary, but, uh, but yeah, I'm with you. It, uh, it would rank lower, uh, in the roster of films that they covered, uh, in, uh, in this doc. Yeah. It just, it was, it, it's interesting because it's like, um, it just, it, it's, <laughs> I know this is going to sound weird, but it's an ugly movie for ugly sake. Like that's its aesthetic. And mm-hmm. like, I feel like it's a, more condescending movie than it isn't like a, a like a an empathetic movie like it's it it knows that these people are like it 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 proposes it proposes that like Napoleon Dynamite 
is an idiot, but also we're like, it's funny that he's an idiot. It's a, it's funny that he's on, <laughs> like, it's funny that he's on the, he's on the scale. Like, like he's, he has some kind of asocial disease. Like that's what right. he's proposing. And it, there's no empathy there. And so, like, when I see it, I'm just like, uh, yeah, it's just not funny. Like, I, like I look at it and I go, okay. Like, like you said, like, the recounting of the steak, like, was really hilarious, right? Like, wh- like, 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 Uncle Rico played by the great, great, great John Grease um, talking about that is, like, is great. And I love, like I said, yeah. I love John Grease. Like, he's, like, one of, like, like, you know, we're talking about, like, you talk about eccentric character actors and he's like just one of those guys like since um, real genius um, I've loved and um, it, but it just doesn't work for me. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, well, you, you know, and you've touched on one of the things I think just talking about the documentary itself mm-hmm. uh, that I thought was really good is, you know, a lot of people will knock talking head documentaries, you know, they want documentaries to push the form and, and, and offer some kind of, you know, uh, interesting, maybe hybrid of narrative and, and, and talking head and recreation and whatever all. Uh, and so this is just a straight up talking head documentary, but the one thing that you've got to give it is they really get the little nuggets that are interesting. Yep. You know, it, it doesn't settle for, oh, wow, you know, these were just such a bunch of crazy guys and gals. And, man, we had so much fun on the set. And just those kind of generic quotes that it's like when you hear them, you're like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, that didn't enlighten me at all. Uh, and so, like, uh, uh, like um, Fairley's uh, comment about David Geffen. Oh, yes. After seeing Kingpin. Yes. You know, and and stuff like that. I mean, those are really cool little anecdotes uh, and little insider nuggets of information that I've never heard. And and it seems like they really asked the questions that you would be interested in uh, and, and got those responses on film. And so to me, you know, this film works for all kinds of different film fans. You know, if you're younger, I mean, you know, I'm coming at this from, you know, age 51 mm-hmm. uh, and having seen all these movies at least once and many of them multiple times. And so to me, it's kind of like just a fun walk down memory lane. And then you're also getting these interesting little anecdotes. And I mean, even me, I'm just such a nerd that I'm like, oh, that's what he looks like now, you know. <laughs> 30 however many years later you know i mean just i enjoy that kind of enjoy movies about movies even if i've seen all the movies uh but then if you're younger you know it also functions as almost like a, a watch list you know here yes. is some stuff that you may not have seen uh that you really ought to check out to kind of increase your film literacy and so to me it, it kind of works the this series of films wherever you may be in your film uh, development, so to speak, film watching development, uh, this movie will have something to offer you. No, absolutely. Um, it's funny that you bring up those anecdotes because I had no idea that Rock and Roll High School initially uh, Roger Corman wanted Cheap Trick, which, wow, like I would have never <laughs> have watched. I would have never yeah. have watched Rock and Roll High School like the thirty-five times I did if. It was like, like if it like it's weird how that works. How sometimes fate just kind of intervenes because 
I don't see PJ Souls as the type of person that would go crazy over cheap trick. <laughs> but I do see her going crazy yeah. over over um the Ramones, which like yeah. you, And even just listening to people describing them was pretty funny. You know, just, oh yeah. They just showed up, hung out in a room, uh, you know, ordered pizza, pizza from time to time and you know, we're just totally cool, but kind of also totally detached. And so uh, it was interesting hearing tales of uh, of how they, you know, acted and interacted during the project. No, absolutely. Like, um, like it like I, I love that movie. Like that movie's just one of those those like those perennial classics. It, it's it's a little out there and a little weird with the way that it proposes certain things, but I feel like that's like kind of like the aesthetic. It's kind of interesting because I feel like it it very much so like, okay, a movie that I came to very late that I really like that they talked about and I was glad that they talked about was Eating Raul, which I mean, it's because of the Corman and the Mary Warnow and uh, Paul Bartel kind of connection uh, to those two movies. I feel like, yep. like, but in a lot of weird, strange ways, those two films feel like they're a part of the same universe because of the kind of outlandishness that they kind of trade in that, like... I didn't like uh, like it's one of those things where it's like I got into Paul Bartel very late in my life. Like I didn't get into him until like the, my late 20s because I just didn't like, you know, like how sometimes you just miss a filmmaker. Like, oh, I yeah, just, sure. I totally missed like him. Like he's one of those guys that I I just totally missed. It's not like Ken Loach where I purposely missed Ken Loach because it just felt like that was too much of a, like too much homework. Like Ken Loach feels like, like this mountain that you have to climb. Um, he still does to me in a lot of ways. Like I always have to take a deep breath when I listen, when I watch a Ken Loach film, because I know it, it's going to be a lot. Um, but like, he was just like, like uh, Paul Bartel, who's a great filmmaker. Like uh, he's somebody that I totally missed growing up and did not know anything about, even though I knew like his, creative partner in crime Mary Wallnow because of the stuff like Rock and Roll High School and Death Race 2000. I mean, I didn't even know that Death Race 2000 was a Paul Bartel film until I started deep diving into Bart Paul Bartel films. Right. You know, um but uh it, it's kind of it's kind of funny because it's like then there's another one that I like another one that okay, can you tell me what the whole attraction to Showgirls is? <laughs> Well, you know, the funny thing is, is, you know, this is a, a documentary about comedies and camp. Mm -hmm. And so my argument would be, it was intended as neither. Yeah. <laughs> Just wound up being such a disastrous misfire in just kind of tone and things like that that now it has been given new life as, oh, this is a comedy. I mean, I think it's akin uh, in that way to one film that they do cover toward the end, which is The Room. The Room, yes. You know, I, I think I think Showgirls has, has kind of gotten this new life as something that it was never intended to be. 
You know, mm-hmm. I think it was intended to be this kind of dark look at the seedy side of of Las Vegas and the way it, you know, chews up people and spits them out and you may achieve fame, but it's going to cost you your soul kind of a thing. And, uh, and that it was supposed to be, you know, just kind of, you know, sleazy and, 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 you know, edgy or what have you. And it was just kind of such a misfire that now everybody acts like, uh, it was intended as some kind of comedy or satire or something like that. And that's where its value lies. So, uh, yeah, so I, I would call that, a, a an inadvertent, uh, you know, cult film if, if ever there was one. No, absolutely. Um, it's just, yeah, I, I, even as a cult oddity, I don't get it though. I do get the room. Like I get the room as a cult oddity. Yeah. Do I, do yeah. I, do I like it? No, but like very similarly to like, they talked about Glenn and, uh, Glenn or Glenda and plan nine and Ed Wood. They mm-hmm. do a similar kind of like kinship to the room and the disaster artist. And I will say that I like the movies about the terrible filmmakers more than I like the <laughs> movies of the terrible filmmakers. Right. Right. Um, I, I just can't be that like it's weird because it's like there has to be like I've learned as I've gotten older that I cannot uh, I cannot pre uh, predispose like myself to like this whole thing of like I'm not I'm I'm not somebody who can just watch something and like ironically watch something like no no I'm I'm not a it's so bad it's good kind of person. Yeah. I'm a, it's so bad it's fascinating in, in its own way kind of person, you know, that that's more it. It's just kind of like, you're more watching to try to figure out how did this thing go so terribly awry and, and how did this get made and just, you know, kind of the, the disaster quality of it. But to me, it doesn't make it good. No, it's, it's still it's still a bad movie. Uh, it's just maybe for you know one watch or two. Uh, it's it's a fascinating look uh, at how things can go wrong. But it, even you know for me, it's not something that I could just watch repeatedly and develop some kind of admiration for because there's just too much good stuff out there that I haven't seen. Uh, to spend my time watching and rewatching something that's genuinely bad. No, absolutely. A- absolutely. Like, well, so like then uh, like the one film that they like, I wish that they had covered, but they like, it's just because this thing was filmed in 2018, uh, 2017 to 2018, they couldn't cover was Dolomite because it would have been great to like have the three bad like bad filmmakers but with a heart of gold like the ed wood Mm -hmm. the disaster artist and then uh dolomite's my name um which if anybody wants like a great triple feature like start with uh, start with the disaster artist then move to ed wood and then finish it off with dolomite is my name like i like that is like the like the greatest filmmaking triple feature or films about filmmaking triple feature that I could possibly recommend because here's something else that I realized watching these movies is that I like, I hate movies about filmmaking where the filmmaking is good. I like films about filmmakers that are terrible (laughs) because I think that there's something about the fact that when you make a film about a quote unquote great filmmaker, 
Um, even if it's like a like like this whole pretend bullshit, you could never make whatever they're trying to show like whatever they're trying to show you is the greatness is never great. Like the thing that I love about State and Maine, um the the David Mamet film is that they never show you the movie that they're making until the very end. And even then, it kind of ruins it for me that they actually show them filming the film at the end of the movie. Like, I wish that Mamet had cut it right before they did that. Um, right. Like, so it's weird for me. Like, I like I think that the only other movie, uh, like, the only exception to that is uh, Tufo's Day for Night. It's the only movie I can think of that that, right. that takes yeah, that. It's, well, you know, it's hard to, it, it's just hard to capture that kind of alchemy, so to speak. Yes. And and it's true of, of any of of the arts you know i mean it's uh, you know somebody painting a canvas somebody uh shooting a film somebody writing a book you know uh whatever the case may be it's just difficult to capture inspiration and kind of genius that is mostly inward you know yeah uh, i mean like i always think of of stories like um you know uh Bruce Springsteen recording the Born in the USA album. Yeah. And and he he bumps into uh Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> and uh and they're talking and everything and Springsteen says, you know, he's almost done. Uh but you know, he he doesn't really the the studio or the uh the label doesn't really think he has a hit mm-hmm. on the record. And so the last thing written for that album was Dancing in the Dark. Oh, wow. And Jimmy Buffett will tell the story that Bruce was sitting there at like a table in a, I can't remember, it was a diner or a cafeteria or something, uh, writing on a napkin. And it was because it was their last day of, of studio time. And he was sitting there writing Dancing in the Dark, in the dark on a napkin in about 10 minutes. <laughs> and it's the biggest hit he ever had. Easy. And so, you know, and so how do you capture something like that on film? You know, I mean, it's this yeah. inner kind of genius and process. And so you're right. So consequently, uh, you know, the films about the the bad filmmakers, because what you're capturing there is something that we can all identify with, which is passion. Exactly. No, you that's know, the you thing. You may have yeah. passion for playing the guitar, but still suck at it. You know, <laughs> and, and so everybody can identify with that. We all have something, you know, from people just singing, you know, opera in the shower or whatever. You know, we understand having a passion about something, but not being very good at it. And so that's what those those uh, films capture. Uh is uh is is that kind of process and i think that's a little easier to identify with than you know genius because you know, honestly most of us don't have that <laughs> no absolutely not and like um with geniuses there's always this tendency like if you really like if you start to if you track geniuses and you read about them watch documentaries there's this there's a single minded mindedness to like most geniuses that doesn't trans like that translates into like if you were to show them accurately on screen they're just assholes and I mean you know there's a there's a time and place for that of course but I mean you know it's like 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 whatever we say about like you know the human trash that is um 
Mark Zuckerberg. Um, the movie about him is very accurate in the portrayal of that kind of genius, and right. it's like it 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 proposes that. I mean, he's got a lot of issues that are not like you know that that come with being a genius like that kind of like the social norms are gone and i mean you know you just can't make like i i have a theory about like you cannot make a feel-good movie about a genius you just can't if you <laughs> like like when they do it ends up being something like a beautiful mind which is so a weird ass movie to watch because like you know I, for for very many different reasons, um, but like you know, I often think about that. Like it's like like you cannot make a good, you can't make a, a an accurate portrayal of somebody who is a genius that pushed that that pushed something forward without them being an asshole. Like it just it's just not the way that or they're... or yeah or certainly unable to identify with them. exactly you know exactly. because i mean you know i have been in the presence of various people that were just considered to be uber smart you know whatever scientists whatever they might yeah. be and they're just different yeah they're just you know they're not really like us entirely no uh, their their view of the world the way their mind processes whatever the case may be and so yeah i mean you know because like i said the 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 strength of the failed filmmaker films are we can identify with them yeah we can identify with wanting to do something so badly but then it not being very good yeah. You know, writing a novel and when you really read it, you go, oh, this is terrible. Or, you know, writing a song and then when you're finished with it, realizing oh, this really isn't that good. I mean, you know, we can identify with that, but the the true genius kind of level things, uh, it's harder to identify with. You're just a witness to it. Exactly. No, no, absolutely. Um, uh, <laughs> okay, so like I have to like, so like the interesting thing is, is like a couple of like the first episode. No, actually, it was the second episode. We we talked about how the hosts for this, some of them were brought in that we were like, what the hell? Why? They've not commented at all. <laughs> and finally, Kevin Pollack. Like decide like you know it was exactly the reason why we thought that it was is because that he was brought in for the comedy him and um though yeah Ileana Douglas did comment on things she like he just sat there like a deer in headlights and then as soon as the comedies came up he was definitely talking a lot um the thing that I was interested by was that <laughs> so like they have the hosts. And one of them is John Waters. And they actually talk about John Waters movies. And like what I love about John's John Waters is, is that he's so self-evasing about things. Uh -huh. Um I've not seen some of his biggest movies like Female Trouble. I've never seen it. Have you seen Female Trouble? No, you know, as a matter of fact, there was a recent Criterion edition yes. uh, of that. And I don't know, there's just there was something just so kind of <laughs> just depraved and out there looking about it uh, that that I have never sat down and said, okay, I have, you know, 90 minutes to watch a movie and this is going to be my choice. Very uh, garish. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I may be, I may be, you know, totally missing out on something amazing, but he is, he's not a blind spot for me in the sense that I have seen a few of his movies. Yeah. 
but nothing about his films made me want to like watch his whole film filmography and you know kind of become a completist or or what have you it's like i think he's an important cultural kind of touchstone and it's important to know about his work and have seen some of his work uh, but I've just never been compelled to see all of his work. No, absolutely. Like, I feel the same way, like, which is weird because so like as a kid, um, I think it was Cinemax. We had HBO and Cinemax. We had Showtime in the movie channel for a while. Um, and then um, or well, no, we had HBO and Cinemax first. Um, there's a reason why we switched over. I won't get into it here. It's, it's a very, it's a, it's a very teenagery reason why we got it switched over. But anyways, um, Cinemax used to play Hairspray and Crybaby a lot. And so those two movies were things that me and my sister watched a lot. And so like we knew of John Waters from that era. Like, this weird era where John Waters wanted to be respectable, but not, really? Like, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, like, did these, like, crazy-ass musicals that you just kind of look at, like, now I look at and go, I can actually see where that's, like, that ori the original Hairspray, not this new musical that they cleaned up, um, that John Waters probably let them because he could make millions off of. Like, I would, too. <laughs> exactly. Um, Little but, retirement fund. Exactly. But <laughs> watching those originals and Crybaby also, like the way that he took certain things and tropes and like just kind of like exploited them and turned them inside out uh, is kind of fascinating. And But I mean, as a kid, I just used to watch them to watch them, not really realizing that like uh, like it it didn't make. Like, there was nothing in there that made me go, Divine is, like, you know, is uh, is somebody who's a, uh, like, you know, is a transgender woman, and there was nothing wrong with that. I just literally watched it and go, huh, okay, so this is, like, kind of more of, like, a reality-based thing where Iggy Pop, like, Iggy Pop is ma, uh, is dad, and, like, Divine is ma in um, Crybaby. It just made sense to me because there was a sense of realism to that. It wasn't the fact that... Now I watch it and I go, that's fucking Iggy Pop. Like, that's Iggy Pop playing dad to Divine's mom. That is a really weird, radical act in a movie that's supposed to be for teens. Um, right. Which, like I said, like, like I've not seen female trial. I've not seen his early work. And that's a, it, like you said, it's not a blind spot. Like, I mean, I saw Pink Flamingos. Of course, everybody has seen Pink Flamingos when you're, when you're a genre fan and you hear about the stuff that, like, is happening on, in Pink Flamingos, you're curious. Um, but yeah, like, it was interesting. Like, it made me go, okay, maybe I should see this. Um, let's see if it's on the Criterion channel. Uh, <laughs> and see if I can get I can get a watch in. Um, another one, and this is a kind of like a through line for what we've talked about, is um, they talked more again about Russ Myers and the Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is the Roger mm -hmm. Ebert uh, scripted sequel to Valley of the Dolls that Russ Myers right. directed. Which, so... Again, this is another one where I feel like I've seen this one and I don't know how you feel about this one, but this one is so garish and weird and just kind of like of an era that it didn't connect with me. It never has. It, you know, I like the time capsule value of it. Yes. Uh, you know, although as even as I'm watching it as someone who was not 
alive in the 60s, except briefly as a baby in 69. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I'm watching it and thinking somehow I don't really think this is what the 60s was really like. Uh, but uh, between the music, uh, the fashion, uh, all of that kind of stuff, I find it like a fascinating look at an era that I didn't live through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, yeah, it's it's really, you know, odd. Yeah. Um, also, like, additionally, like, I still want them, like, I don't know where they are with it, but have you heard that there's a script about the making of this where Josh Gad is actually casted as Roger Ebert? And I really want oh, to see that. Yeah, I oh. really want to see that movie that being be made. Cool. Yeah, it's almost like the, um, you've heard about, uh, Joe, uh, Joe, Don- like the host of this Joe Dante, his mm-hmm. movie called The Trip, that's about Roger Corman dropping acid. Right. Um, like that script and how like Bill Hader is going to be like a uh, Roger Corman, which is kind of great. Like, again, mm-hmm. I have this big affinity for bad filmmakers like Corman's not a bad filmmaker. It just just like bad, like supposed bad filmmakers making films and making movies about those films. Um, right. Which is just kind of like a really weird, very, very sub, sub, sub genre kind of thing. But I mean, you know, as film fans, I mean, we all have our really weird esoteric things. Like I can guarantee, like there's some kind of like music biopic thing that you really like seeing like like biopics about drummers is probably something that you're really into (laughs) (laughs) or movies about drummers like you know like like it's just it's like we all have our really like it was interesting to watch this because it really kind of made me think about certain things that the other genre like the other first two didn't make me think about like the first two were like very in like more of an experiential thing for me like oh man Mm -hmm. like i remember where i was and what i did but this one kind of made me think about like my taste as a film fan if anything or like like what i like in film which is really weird because it's comedy like but then again you know what maybe it's not because comedy is all about taste right sure you know what? Yeah, you... and and I think that you hit on something earlier, big time, with the communal experience. Yes. Uh, aspect of it, you know, the uh, the probably your favorite comedy memories uh, involve, you know, the right night, the right crowd, the right film, and just remembering, you know, just having kind of a transcendent experience at the theater. Uh, for me, that was going to see. Uh, there's something about Mary. Uh, and, uh, and literally just, you know, laughing until we were, you know, weeping, uh, with, uh, with a great crowd, uh, that night. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so there's that element to it as well, but yeah, I know exactly what you're thinking. The first two films were, were like, kind of like a walk down memory lane, uh, more because I think it, it may be in a way in the first two films of this series, I think the overall merit of the films that were brought up was kind of unassailable. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you're talking about stuff like Blade Runner and, you know, stuff like that, I mean, there's just no real questioning the quality of what we're talking about. But then when you get into the comedies and especially the camp element of things, I think you can have a lot of debate over what is truly a good or great film 
uh, versus what, in your opinion, is just kind of meh, but has, for whatever reason, had a, a, a big reputation over the years. This is very true. Like, you know, like they say, beauty is eye, is in the eye of the beholder. Comedy is definitely um, in uh, is in the eye of the beholder because it is very a subjective. It's a very subjective topic. Um, you know, uh, and, and it's interesting, like the group that they got for cult. And this is the thing is that the the funniest thing to me is that like. I kept on having to remind myself, this is about cult movies. So, of course, they're not going to have Airplane or The Naked Gun on there because those are like pillars and institutions of things. Um, Exactly. And not... And not the like, you know, the culty kinds of things. The one, the like, I did like the amount of things that they taught, like uh, the the breadth of of the the various comedies that they talked about. Because uh, what I felt like was like something that we talked about. I think in in the first two episodes, like you were right, like like they they chose the unassailable like choices in one and two for like cult midnight movies and then horror and sci-fi it would have been nice to see them go a little bit out there with their choices and be a little bit more varied kind of like with the way that they did here because like i said there were some movies that i was just like okay you want to say that that's a that's a great Mm -hmm. i mean but then again i had to remind myself it's just a choice like you know there are a lot of people that like so like there are a lot of people that love super troopers and i mean Mm -hmm. Stoner comedies, like, nah, it's all good. You, I'll stay with The Big Lebowski every single time. Like, right. if you're good. Or, like, you know, Cheech and Chong's, uh, Cheech, uh, like, you know, Cheech <laughs> right. and Chong up in smoke. Like, Super Troopers, for various reasons, it just, it doesn't work for me. Which, I mean, okay, fine. It doesn't work for me. Um, The same way that Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is like, okay, like, that's a comedy? Or are you talking about camp? Like, oh, right. okay, it's more camp. Um. So it's really, uh, it's really a fascinating kind of, um, this one is really fascinating because at least for me was because of my reactions to it, the comedy or the, this episode at least. Yep. Yep. No, I agree. I thought that, uh, uh, that it was really, uh, a, a nice, you know, interesting blend of, of choices and, and I like the debate aspect of it. Yeah. You know, the ability to say, oh, really? You think that you really, eh, well, I guess I could see that. And, uh, you know, to me, that just kind of adds to the fun, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that, that you can debate whether or not you think some of these films deserve the the cult accolades that they're getting or not. And and uh, just, you know, makes the conversation interesting. No, absolutely. Like, uh, it, it it is definitely um it, like to me it was definitely interesting to watch that kind of aspect of it as like like what like the taste that they used to to select these uh, mm-hmm. more than anything else and like by far and large like it was it, it was in taste with things that i like um like you know i definitely like i said like i i'm a big king kingpin fan like i was really happy that they really kind of deep dove into that one mm-hmm. um yep. just because it's so fucking funny like it's i don't know i don't i don't even know like there's a part of me that that kind of knows why but doesn't know why it is so funny to me like i, I like it I mean, Amish Bowler. I mean, Randy Quaid. Like, Randy Quaid, there's, like, there's just something, there's something wrong with that dude, and we all know it, 
but it's still funny and, and to it's watch. Been, and it's been proven out since then. I know, a, in a what big a odd, way. <laughs> what an odd life he's had uh, since that time. Do you want, like, I often wonder, do you think that Dennis is just like, what the fuck, dude? What? <laughs> like, I came out normal, bud. Like, why yeah. can't you just be normal? He, you know? he grew up with him, so he may just be, you know, sitting there thinking, oh, good old Randy. You're yeah. always unusual. <laughs> That's our Randy. Which Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, so like the the weirdest thing to me is that I always often forget that Randy Quaid was literally in the last picture show. Like he went from yeah. the yeah. last you the... can forget those things. <laughs> like, but then also he's in this weird blip of like like there's this weird blip where he actually mattered for a few seconds again when he was in Brokeback Mountain. Right. And he, and he does like this great job in Brokeback Mountain. Um, yep. But I mean, it's also, he's casted, he was kind of casted to type, if you really think about it in that movie. But, um, sure. but it's like, it's, it's funny because it's like, like, Kingpin is like, well, just like I, like I said, it's like one of those cult oddities that I just love to death. And it was one of those things that I watched, like, you know, like everybody has their college, I, like their college comedy movies and Kingpin was definitely one of those that I watched a lot. Um, that Lebowski raising Arizona, like, which, okay. So like, can we just talk about for two, two seconds, why they didn't include raising Arizona because it's kind of a cult comedy. Yeah, that is interesting. I guess, you know, I don't know if at some point you just run out of time. <laughs> True. Cause, cause it was the longest, you know, I think the first one, uh, the midnight movies was around, I don't know, 85 minutes. And then I think the sci-fi horror one was around a hundred minutes. And then this one was close to 125. And you can still think of films that weren't included. And so uh maybe they uh didn't agree that it's a cult film, though I wouldn't know why. Uh or maybe they just eventually said, Hey, we, we gotta draw the line somewhere, uh, or we're gonna have a, you know, three hour installment in this documentary. So not that's, sure that that's very true. Was there like, oh, so like I, I do have to ask, was there any like cult comedies from your era? Like when you were in college that were like things that like you, like say either you and your friends or just people in general that you were around was like something that constantly rotated into, into like viewing habits. You know, it was, it truly was a little bit different then because the technology was so much different mm -hmm. you know yeah i mean now i mean it's true i mean some people are like oh yeah you know whatever uh but no it, it's true that you know i mean my college days were still vhs days yeah and you know going down to the video store and what do they have and what do they not have and you know forget getting a foreign film or an art house film or something like that most of the time i mean uh, the ones that were available were the ones that had truly kind of transcended uh, in the marketplace. And so it is just a much different world with accessibility to these films where, you know, if, if I had seen these documentaries when I was in college, my ability to then find these types of movies to say, oh, God, I've never seen that. I need to see that. I don't know that I could have seen it if I wanted to see it. Whereas now with, you know, streaming services, you know, digital rentals, uh, all of that kind of stuff, most anything that has been featured in these documentaries, you can go out and dial up and watch it. 
you know, download, I should say dial up cheese, but uh, (laughs) but anyway, you you know what I mean? Uh, Yeah, no, absolutely. uh, Yeah. And so it really is, uh, you know, a different kind of world when it comes to being able to see these cult films and, and catch up on these things because of the, the way that everything is, is so accessible these days. No, very much so. It, it, it And that's the greatest thing that, like, I don't think, like, you know, people from our generation or even people in their 30s, like, like anybody who's had to deal with the fact that, like, you know, you go to a video store and, like, and this is something I haven't thought about in a long time. You go, like, early, the earliest you can go on a, on, on a Friday night or a Friday and you go to, like, whatever video store that you went to and you wanted to get the newest release and guess what? It's fucking sold out or it's rented yep. out. Like, kids don't well, understand to, that. No, and to give you an idea of how popular it was renting stuff then, they could have 20, 25 copies of whatever the new title is, and they would all be gone. Exactly. So it wasn't just like there was just one sitting there and you went, oh, damn, I'm not going to be able to see that this weekend. I mean, they would have, you know, 20 copies of it because it's the hot new title and all of them would already be rented. Exactly. And or waiting lists. Do you remember waiting? Like, I don't know if it like. Like my video store had a waiting list and like sometimes that shit would like fill up like, you know, you wouldn't get that video for like two or three weeks and and then you'd get it like on like like you'd get it on like a Wednesday and that's the (laughs) suckiest part. Yeah, it never failed. Like, you'd get it at some point in time that you might not even be able to have the time to watch it. Exactly. Exactly. They give it to you on a Wednesday, and you're like, really, dudes? Like, really? But then there would always be those... Like, and that's what I find is funny is that, like, I think that with availability comes this whole thing of, like, of anticipation and excitement have gone to zero to nil. Like, because of the fact that you can get it, just yep. means the accessibility means that it, it leans less to you. Cause I, I remember distinctly like being super excited about, about certain rentals that you would get like that opening weekend, like you'd get in luck and you'd find it and you would just be like, yes, I'm going to watch this 35 times. Um, <laughs> it, it, well, you know, it's, it's kind of like you do film festivals now. Yeah. No, you know, absolutely. if you know that a movie has distribution, and it's going to be probably fairly readily available a few months down the road, then at least I personally don't usually go see that. I'll go see the thing that has a lot of buzz that has no distribution uh, because maybe I'm never going to get to see it again or at least not for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And so that's about as close as you can come to the experience that we're talking about because everything is so readily available uh, these days. And so really you almost have to get down to the level of something that is so rare it doesn't even have distribution yet uh, to to get that kind of scarcity excitement uh, that you would get in the days of, of video stores. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and also like so like the other thing, too, um, in a really weird way is those limited release um, Blu-rays that like twilight time used to be like that like where you'd have to like like as soon as it posted like you know the limited edition runs of like three thousand, which some people think that that's a lot but it's not trust me it's not like things go sell out quickly especially when those pre-orders come up um 
you know, so you just kind of have to get in there and get fast. I mean, now it's it's other it's other labels that are starting to do limited editions runs because they just can't they 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 can't afford to to do like a whole huge run. So they only do the amount that they know that they can do, which like brings an excitement to it. Like Vinegar Syndrome is doing that a lot now. Mm-hmm. Is that they're they're yeah. having to like in this era do only like fifteen hundred to a thousand copies or two thousand copies for like, you know, these wildly like like obscure things that they used to be able to just do big runs on. But I mean, you know, for those who really want them, they really want them. Like, and you're going to go and try to, like, you know, like me, like with the Vinegar Syndrome people, like when they had their their Memorial Day sale, I literally like was up at two o'clock in the morning ordering shit. Like, because <laughs> I knew that I wanted certain things yep. from them. Yep, I and, ordered a batch of stuff too. You know, so it, it is interesting, like, to like to think about uh, like that kind of side effect of of going with these I hate to call them nostalgia, like nostalgia docs, because it's this one's really not a nostalgia doc. This is more Mm-mm. like talking about where it is in a place, but yep. it does bring not nostalgia, but it does bring like this this certain specific like aspect of going back and thinking about the way things were. Oh yeah, oh yeah, you yeah. know, yeah, and and that just comes with being a a veteran film watcher. Mm-hmm. And and so there is history wrapped up uh, in a lot of these releases, uh, you know, like, I mean, thinking stuff like, you know, the thing Blade Runner and E.T. coming out on the same weekend and knowing as a, you know, 12 year old kid, I was headed to see E.T. oblivious of the other two. Mm-hmm. And now I consider the other two to be a couple of the best films ever made. Yep. So so, you know, it's it's if you've if you've lived long enough uh, these these types of documentaries, not only are they, uh, you know, just informative with the extra information and behind the scenes kind of elements that they offer, but it's also that walk down memory lane and that kind of historic reassessment of, oh my gosh, you know, I remember when I used to be in love with that film, but maybe now I don't think it's so good. Or, oh, I remember when, you know, I hated that movie and now I think it's genius and so opinions do change over time. Hopefully, if you grow uh, as an individual and, and with your, you know, kind of film aesthetic and everything like that, uh, your opinions will evolve. And movies that you may have thought were garbage before you're going to think are great uh, and vice versa. And so it's interesting from from that part of it as well. No, absolutely. Um, which it is like, you know, like it's it's what we need. Like, I, I feel like that's more what we need and less nostalgia. If that makes any kind of sense. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, there, but you know, there's, you know, to me, there's, there are a couple of brands of nostalgia. There's cynical nostalgia. Like we're going to cash in on the interest in a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there is nostalgia that just kind of naturally flows from something. And, and so, you know, I mean, cause you know, even like a a show like stranger things was getting a little knocked for that, Uh that, uh, that, you know, they were trying to so build in, uh, this eighties nostalgia to bring in my generation to watch that show. They didn't want it to just be the young people who would identify with the protagonists. Uh, they wanted it to also be a generation of people in their forties and fifties 
who had some kind of growing up attachment to the 80s to also be interested. And so you can kind of have, you know, nostalgia as marketing and then you can kind of have nostalgia as just, you know, a, a natural uh, you know, something that naturally flows from what it is that you're watching. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, was there, and so I think this is, is the, I just was going to say, I think this is the better version uh, of nostalgia. It's just like taking a trip through film history. Uh, and if you've seen the film, you're going to have memories and everything like that of, you know, when you saw it and how you felt about it. And if you've not seen the film, then, you know, like I said, it's a neat little, uh, you know, uh, primer on, you know, maybe some some classic films that you have missed along the way that you ought to go check out. No, absolutely. I think that that's you kind of perfectly summarized this uh, this documentary series and kind of like the best way to close out um, our time talking about it. It's been a lot of fun, though. Like it, it really yeah, it really of- has. I enjoyed it. I mean, honestly, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought that I would. Uh, yeah. Just just going in, you know, I didn't know would it just be kind of you know, treading on the familiar to the point that it's kind of ho-hum and, and it definitely wasn't. No, it definitely was not. Um, Scott, where can people find you um, this week on internet and social media? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at mscott underscore Phillips. Uh, and then uh, I do video reviews for wrbl.com, which is a CBS affiliate in Georgia. Uh, and then I also do written work on occasion, though it's been a while, mm-hmm. at uh, themovieisle.com. Hopefully as we uh, get into a few of these uh, digital festivals that are going to be kicking off here in a couple of months, uh, my work for The Movie Isle will ratchet back up to what I'm used to. But that is where you can find me. How about you? Um, you guys can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, the The social media pages for the um, movie aisle and for the B Movie Podcast are the are the same on both platforms. It's uh, for the B Movie Podcast. It's uh, B Movie Pod. The letter B, the word movie, and the word pod. B Movie Pod. Uh, the uh, movie aisle is just simply the movie aisle. Uh, is on both Instagram and Twitter, though um, Instagram is a little bit more active and uh, Twitter is just more of a landing page for us to like for video, like for all of our reviews and content and such. So like don't expect us to be talking about anything right now, just more of about the reviews. So please, you know, follow if you want to like actually see the reviews from uh, like, you know, like the, the reviews that I'm posting Marie, uh, S- uh Scott's work, um, because we do also retweet his video reviews because we, we love them a lot and we want to just support his work. Um, and then again, if you want to be a little bit more active, you can go to Instagram where, uh, we have a little bit more content, like daily content about stuff that we're watching and such. Um, and with that, we will be back next week with a brand new topic and a brand new episode. Um, and, uh, we will talk to you soon. So what do you think of my school, guys? Boy, when you have recess, you really go all out. Consider yourselves officially enrolled in rock and roll high school. The facilities are yours. Do whatever you want. Do you want to